Sermonsmith, a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation. My name is John Chandler. My guest today is Scott Daniels. Scott is the pastor of Nampa College Church in Nampa, Idaho, and he regularly also teaches uh, at universities, teaches preaching classes, has experience in that setting. So as always, it's great to hear from somebody who's got more experience probably than most of us who listen to this and certainly even more than many of the people I've interviewed on the podcast. And I love someone who has years of thoughtful reflection to give back. So you'll hear that for certain coming through in this week's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, just a reminder, one of the ways that you can help keep things going is go to patreon.com slash sermonsmith, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And there you can pledge to support the podcast with a dollar or five dollars uh, for each time one comes out. That's just really helpful for covering my time, covering sermon, uh, server costs, not sermon costs. I don't charge for my sermons, but server costs. Uh, so I'd appreciate that if you'd consider that. But in the meantime, here is Scott Daniels from Idaho. I think you're my, I think you're my first Nazarene that I've interviewed. I've met Nazarenes, but I don't know that I've interviewed any Nazarenes. Well, we usually don't have that much to say, probably. <laughs> Is that how it, all preachers have a lot to say? Yeah. Uh, um, well, let's, I mean, let's just jump in right there. Why don't you tell us about the context where you preach? Yeah, so I'm the senior pastor at Nampa College Church in Nampa, Idaho. Uh, we are right across the street from uh, one of my alma maters from Northwest Nazarene University. Uh, this church has been here for um, about 60 years and uh, started as a church on campus, and then just over the years has uh, grown into a church for uh, the university, but for the community around uh, around the university. Nampa uh, was a really small town for a long time, but we're just a few miles west of Boise and are now the, I think, fourth largest city in Idaho, which isn't a big contest, but uh, getting, close right. to, yeah, getting close to 100,000 people uh, in the city of Nampa. Okay. And is the, so is the church itself, I mean, does it still have a lot of students from the university or is it pretty multi-generational? And... Uh, yes, both. Um, it, you know, the Church of Nazarene, we have eight universities regionally located um, and uh, two or three of them, uh, for some reason, uh, this one in Nampa, Idaho, uh, I taught for seven years at Southern Nazarene University just outside of Oklahoma City in Bethany, Oklahoma. Uh, but there are two or three of them where uh, we kind of joke uh, that Nazarene come to die. Um, housing is inexpensive, and there's wonderful communities of people that you've been connected with. And um, and so we have a number of, I have a lot of retired uh, clergy in, in the church, uh, a lot of current and retired faculty, a lot of students. Uh, but I would say at least uh, at least 50% of the church are people who may have may have attended the university, but are are just uh, kind of folks from the community. Um, so I would say about fifty percent of the congregation are somehow connected, uh, either as students or faculty or staff of the university. And the other fifty percent are are uh, folks from the community. Sounds like you have to stay on your toes when you're writing your sermons. Yeah, well, it's been <laughs> it's been interesting. I was um, I've I've been back here. Uh, a year and a half, uh, I was the pastor at Pasadena first in Pasadena, California for almost 10 years. And, um, but it's been interesting to come back and have, 
uh, so many of my former professors a few other academic types, but actually I think they uh, they've been really supportive so it's been it's been pretty good but my first few weeks i I was a little intimidated to preach in front of my former faculty yeah, I bet. Um, I, I'm just making a connection here, I think. So is the church that you were at prior the church where Tara Beth Leach is now? That is right. Yeah, she, okay, yeah. Yeah, she followed me there. I, and yeah, you know what? So now that I say that, maybe I have had a Nazarene on before. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Tara Beth uh, followed me there. I was. It was great. Paz, uh, what we affectionately call Paz Naz, um, is a, a really great historical church within the denomination. We... We started in Southern California. Uh, Phineas F. Brzee, the, the founder, was a Methodist minister in Pasadena. And so that was the second church started in the denomination. So it's kind of a great historic church for us. And uh, it was fun. I My years there, I, the last five years, I, I also served as the dean of the School of Theology at Azusa Pacific. And so kind of split my life between the two places. But, um, but it's been good. It, uh, and she's doing a great job. I'm sure she is, yeah. Uh, I just a little note. I'm getting a little bit of rubbing sound occasionally from okay. your mic. I don't okay. know if your mic's just rubbing on a collar or something like that, but okay. I thought I'd let you know. All right, thanks. Um, okay, so tell us even a little bit then about Nazarene. Is there anything like what would you say is distinctive about the Nazarene Church, maybe in terms of uh, theology or history that might even shape what preaching looks like in a Nazarene Church? Yeah. So. We're a little over a century old. Uh, the Church of the Nazarene was formed in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, Brzee, Phineas Brzee was a Methodist minister who was concerned that folks were leaving the inner city of L.A. and moving out to suburbs like Pasadena and other places out and around L.A., but were leaving a number of folks behind, and especially people who were... Um, were poor and oftentimes broken by various addictions and and so he and a friend who actually was the president of USC at the time um, they decided to start a kind of mission in what is now Skid Row in LA hmm. um, and so they started a church they 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 love the story in the Gospel of John where Jesus meets uh, Philip and then he goes and gets his friend Nathaniel and says, hey, you got to come. We, we think we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, where does he come from? And Philip says, Nazareth. And Nathaniel replies, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right. And so they like this idea that we'd be a ch the church about Jesus, the Nazarene, but we'd be a church oriented towards people who nobody thought anything good could come from them. Um, and so we started out of that context and then really became a, a, a formal denomination in a merger that happened just a few years later in Pilot Point, Texas, of a number of independent groups that were really interested in pursuing holiness, um, all kind of connected in one way or another to some tradition connected to John Wesley. They had to work through a number of, of kind of differences, uh, but found found some unity there. And... Uh, but, you know, over the years, uh, it's been interesting. So so we're part of the holiness tradition. So some of our cousins theologically would be people like the Wesleyan Church and the Free Methodist Church and the Salvation Army would probably be our closest theological, uh, historical connection points. Um, we do have some 
some roots also with the Pentecostal movement, um, although we divided over the issue of what, you know, what is the manifestation of being filled with the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, over the years, we're the largest of the holiness traditions, and we've started lots of, lots of colleges, um, close to 2 million members uh, over those over the years, uh, this last decade, we've shifted from the majority of our members are actually outside North America now. Um, typical of a lot of churches were growing really rapidly in Africa and South America and, and uh, some global places. Uh, but we're still connected to each other globally. Uh, so, but our interests, so in some ways, because we're a group that merged together, we oftentimes think we have kind of a broad tent over some theological issues that are sometimes divisive. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, our core, our core values are that we're Christian, we're holiness and we're missional. And so, uh, what does it mean uh, for our lives to be shaped by, by God, to be reflections of his holy love in the world, I think would be the, the primary emphasis, Christ likeness, um, uh, that that sort of optimism of grace that comes from John Wesley to pursue the life that Christ wants for us, not just in the life to come, but but in our lives today. So with, I mean, with a little bit of that understanding, and this, I guess I'm asking uniquely about college church, but um, yeah, let's just focus it on college church, but knowing some of that background, what would you say in uh, the life of college church, the role of preaching is? Well, I don't know that we're all that different from what it would be in other contexts. I, I so think of, uh, well, I, I guess, um, so my, I have a PhD in, in theological ethics and one of my favorite, uh, ethicists is a guy named Alistair McIntyre, who's a virtue ethicist and who would say, um, as we think about who are, who we think we ought to be, we always have some kind of tell, tell us in mind, some goal to which we're moving. And I would say, you know, in, in the holiness tradition, but in Christianity in general, we have these like eschatological pictures of where we think God is, is moving all things and redeeming all things. And we want to become a, a reflection of, of the eternal life brought about through the resurrection of Jesus. But, but we are also moving towards a kind of vision of what it means to be the church, um, to be his salt and light in the world. And so we have this kind of telos to which we're moving. But in order to get there, we really have to develop certain virtues in our lives and become a certain kind of people. Uh, but McIntyre would say the two ways that we do that, uh, we do that through through particular narratives, um, so stories that shape us, um, a narrative that becomes a kind of pair of glasses through which we see and interpret the world and then we also do that through various practices and so it's not enough just to kind of have that story but we have to we have to habit that story into our lives and so I I would say in my own particular setting I think of preaching then as the continual gathering around the word in order to be shaped by that so that the scripture becomes the the lens of our imagination through which we see and understand God Uh, but but also the lens through which we see and understand ourselves and we see and understand the world and our, our mission and, and our, our place within God's story in that. And so, you know, preaching has a pretty significant role, um, as we, as we hear from God. Um, but all of that's, 
connected to than the ways that we practice. Um, one of my really good friends, uh, Jamie Smith, who writes under the name James James K. A. Smith and wrote some wonderful books, but in particular sure, sure. a book, Desiring the Kingdom. Jamie's really messed me up with regards to what <laughs> it means to think of worship as counterformation, um, that we're a people who are constantly shaped by various cultural liturgies. And so what does it mean for us as the church to participate in practices that also become counterformative? And so preaching has an important counterformative role in that in terms of seeing and, and interpreting the world. But but that's also supplemented by various ways that we worship and gather around the table and participate in the sacramental life of the church. Got it. Thank you. I'm counting down notes here. Other questions I'm going to ask you when we come around. Uh, all right. Well, with, with that, um, talk a little bit about what your long-term planning is. It looks like uh, I'm looking at your sermon page right now, and it looks like you spent some time in Mark, and now you're doing more of some thematic stuff. So uh, what is it? Uh, clearly, it doesn't look like you do necessarily lectionary, but what does it look like for you to map out, and how far in advance do you map out sermons? Yeah. Well, I actually kind of go back and forth. It's it's funny when I get to teach preaching. So part of what drew me back to this church and to this community is an opportunity to um, to get to teach on a regular basis and so I get to teach preaching as well and and I encourage uh, young pastors in particular to to begin to think about following the lectionary and so I in my first several years I followed the lectionary and I'm about to go back to it actually for at least a year beginning at Advent this year um, but but I did I did decide uh, to to go through the gospel of Mark uh, we are taking a little bit of break, and it's a little bit of a self-indulgent break. I, I just finished a book on on exile, and so um, part of that has been uh, the publishing companies that's doing that wanted to tape uh, sermons based on each of the chapters, and so we're taking a little break and, and thinking about exile together. Uh, but I've sort of gone back and forth over the years. There, you know, there are wonderful seasons in which especially trying to uh you know, church in nazarene is not a is pretty a pretty low liturgical church um very revivalistic in our practices i think a lot of that is changing there's a generation that's coming through that have been um sort of been messed up by the robert webbers of the world and other people in good ways that are are introducing uh various liturgical practices including uh, observance of the church year, but that's still relatively new stuff for most Nazarenes. And so um, it's been wonderful in seasons to to help a church lean into various practices around uh, the liturgical year. And, and so there are times when I follow the lectionary more closely. Uh, but I, I, my, the person who mentored me most in preaching really helped me try to figure out how to have at least a year of preaching calendar out there. Uh, I, I try to have about 18 months mapped out. Wow. The one nice thing about the lectionary is you can do that much more easily. Sure. Sure. Um, but I, I'm not a, I'm not a very good topical preacher. Uh, I know that there are some people who do that really well, um, but I'm not one of those. And so I like, I really am pretty textually driven. And so there, I either like 
working, let's take a, a year and work through the Gospel of Mark, or let's work through some other set of texts, uh, or I'm leaning towards the lectionary. Yeah, it, I, I mean, I, I did notice that even as you talk, and I see the theme of exile now coming out through these, but I did notice that even with these, you know, you still have a primary text you kind of lean into for each of them. Yeah. Uh, which, which, when you do, um, when you do lectionary, do you tend to try to say, I'm going to do a season of focusing on the New Testament passage or the Old Testament passage, or do you take it week to week on what's striking you? Yeah, I've tended to, to, you know, what I like about the lectionary uh, most is the opportunity for, for the scripture to be heard, um, in several places in the, within a worship service. Um, but I do tend to, to look and say, well, in this Easter season, the lectionary leaves us in Romans most of the time. And so I'm going to, I'm going to end up preaching the Romans text, um, or the gospel text. Uh, yeah. So I, I have a tendency to kind of stick with one as we go through a particular season of the year. And it seems like the lectionary is kind of hanging out in that one location. Um, I, you know, I, I do that. I've done that. I tend for a couple of reasons. One is just in terms of piling up the kinds of resources for preparation. It seems to, to be easier to kind of focus on one, one particular location. But, um, but, you know, even with that said, it's fascinating how often the, you know, you know, it's often intentional, but how often, the lectionary texts play into each other and a, a text from the Old Testament or from the epistles will be a supplement to what, what's going on in the gospel text for the day. Um, but, you know, I, it's helpful resource-wise to be able to kind of stick in one location. And I also think sometimes it's helpful for uh, for the congregation as well to be able to lean into uh, into one one location in the scripture for a few weeks together um, and and allow those texts to, to build on each other and for a, an understanding of a particular location in the scripture to be developed over a few weeks. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that starts to transition us in pretty well to let's, let's hone in a little more and talk about when you do any particular sermon, uh, you know, what does that process look like? Obviously, when you're going through Mark or when you're doing lectionary, you have a text that you're working from. You know, I don't know if thematically when you're doing exile right now, you still start with a text. Uh, but just just talk us through what your process looks like for uh, putting any individual sermon together, how far out you're starting and what that looks like. Yeah. And even yeah. And even I would say some of this thematic stuff um, has come from is has been textually driven. So it, I'm my next kind of writing project. I'm working on a book on Jonah. Uh, but Jonah as a, as a, a narrative that really comes, even though it's about a Northern prophet, uh, there's some scholars that have said Jonah is really a book from Judah as a way of re-narrating their own life. Um, in the same way that Jonah had a call and ran from it, so to the Judeans, in the same way Jonah gets swallowed up into the belly of the fish, the Judeans get swallowed up into exile and, and et cetera. That it becomes a way of reading their own life. So I, I would say even this exile stuff has come out of, uh, has been really textually driven for me and not just uh, kind of topically sure. driven. But, but in terms of process, um, yeah, I, I tell students I'm not, 
I've 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 been pretty uh, ob- obnoxiously detailed in my process over the years, but it's starting to pay off now. Twenty something years into this, that um, so when I when I did when I've been doing Mark, I have six or seven key key resources that become the standard resources for me, and I'll I'll work through and highlight in the commentaries or various texts on on Mark. I'll highlight the the things that stuck out to me most, and then I even go back and then type those out and put those all together. And so, so now it's nice because I have, you know, I have um, pretty extensive notes of of, of my own uh, out of the entire Gospel of Mark uh, from those six or seven key resources, hmm. uh, and that becomes then the basis of, of kind of working out the sermon preparation. Um, but, uh, you know, I've kind of, somebody who's been influential in my own thinking in terms of homiletics and, and somebody I, I still introduce students to is Eugene Lowry. I really like the homiletical mm-hmm. plot. Right. And the process of, of kind of creating a couple of stacks and at least mentally as you go through the, the text to say, what's the problem that this text address addresses? Uh, what's the what's the nature of humanity that sort of <laughs> becomes part of this text? Uh, I often invite students to say, you know, ask these kinds of questions. Why in the world would the people of God keep this text? Uh, what, why would we want to tell our children this story? What What are the kinds of problems that it addresses? And, and you know, I, as Lowry would say, if you can't find the problem, 99% of the time it's us. And then, <laughs> you know, begin to lay out what's the solution, what is the way the, that the the human problem that this text is brought, brings out where does the gospel meet this? What's the, for Lowry, what's the aha moment where the gospel speaks into this or, uh, and then what's the, what's the lived appropriation that we begin, can begin to embrace coming out of that text. And so I, you know, I've kind of thought through those, I, you know, as I go through all of that stuff, looking for what's the generative idea that I'm going to latch onto here where, um, the gospel really, uh, comes out of this when I, when I was when I was in Pasadena um, a guy named um, Bob Mai um, his daughter Mary Ann Mai Thompson still teaches at Fuller Seminary but Bob was the dean for a, a number of years of school of theology and he and his wife Mary started coming to the early service on a regular basis and at first it was kind of intimidating to me but um, I'd stand at the door and shake hands and if, if Bob Mai would shake my hand and more more often than not he would do this, but he'd shake my hand and say, We heard the gospel today, you know, I would feel mm-hmm. like, um, yeah, I succeeded. Yeah, you know, this was the right thing. But I I I go into the text and kind of looking for what is the problem and where where is the gospel um in this in this text. Uh so would you equate you just said what's the generative idea? Yeah. Which, generative is a word I've introduced to our congregation a couple times because it's a beautiful word. But uh, what I, I mean, would you would you equate that equally with generative idea equals the gospel, the good news? Like what is the life giving principle here or would you is that something a little bit different you're going for there? No, I, that's not a bad way of defining it. I, I think it's the um, it's the it, it's the gospel. Uh, question it's the it's the challenge of the text it's the thing that for you as the preacher as you're wrestling with the text it's the idea that you couldn't get away from um 
And so, you know, the one that jumps out to mind most quickly and my probably my my favorite sermon that sort of emerged, a couple of sermons that emerged out of the Gospel of Mark, um, you know, one is you know, you've got this great section of Mark that's sort of bookended by two blind men, the healing of the man Jesus has to touch twice, uh, and which is followed by Jesus asking, you know, who do people say that I am? And then Peter gets the right answer and but then he gets the wrong answer, you know, and so that, yeah, this wonderful generative idea that, that in this whole section, we see well enough to know that Jesus is the Messiah, but we really struggle to see well enough to know what that means and, and what does the cross mean. And so, 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 so much of Mark has to do with our continued inability to sort of see, and, and those kinds of generative ideas then become the basis, you know, that, that's the thought you can't get away from. But my favorite was probably... Um, in Mark 14 in the garden narrative it's only in Mark where the, that narrative ends with the young man who, who runs out of the garden naked they grab him and he loses you know they hold on to this um, this cloth that was wrapped around him and so you know I, I struggled with through the commentaries with you know who is this naked young man in the garden that leaves the garden and um and, you know, there are a number of scholars who would say this young man that's naked in the garden turns out to be the same young man the women meet at the tomb, only now he's not naked, but he's clothed, and he's at the right side of the tomb, and he is the witness to the resurrected Jesus. And so, for me, that text became about um, Mark is narrating us all in the garden. We are all, we all kind of walk with the disciples and see the cost of discipleship, have, you know, have said, we'll stay with you to the end, but when we see that, we... Um, the scripture has a tendency to narrate us as we're, we seem to always be naked when we're in gardens and discovering our nakedness when we're in gardens and that, um, that Mark seems to narrate us in as, as these people who all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that's not where the gospel ends. And so anyway, those are just some of my favorite moments of saying, man, this is, I didn't expect to find this when I got into this text, right? Um, but but somehow in the praying and studying of this text, this is the generative idea where the gospel seems to be so clearly at work here um, that becomes becomes central um, and you just can't get away from it. And it's, I say to students, it's the idea that that you feel like if I don't proclaim this to somebody, my head may explode and my heart may explode. So, um, yeah. I've had that feeling, and and then I've had that feeling where uh, on Saturday I'm saying, I need something that's going to make Please my heart God, explode. Please, God, give me a generative idea. <laughs> yes. you know? yeah. uh, well, let, let me go back, because you talked about just being deliberate and particular. So then you have all of this, you know, these six to seven key resources from Mark. Are you talking that that is that is study you even did years ago that you're just able to return to? Or is this months ago when you knew you were going to start Mark, you ended, you went into an intentional season of studying Mark. Like what, what does that look like? And what, what are those, what form do those notes take? Are they yellow legal pads or, or what are yeah. they? No, it's a great question. Uh, sort of both. And I, so, uh, the nice part about moving every once in a while is you get to go back to some things that you've done before and, and give it another shot. <laughs> right, um, right. but, but a few years ago I, I preached the gospel of Mark and, and, so I, I had, you know, the six or seven resources and, and for me, that looks like going through highlighting and then taking my computer. And I, I just type, type back out everything that I highlighted so that I just have all of that in one place so that I can print off the, it's usually, 
seven, eight, nine, ten pages of of notes, then um, that I can kind of have all in one space rather than having seven books in front of me. I can just have the what I felt like were the key thoughts from each of those sources. Uh, but it's been nice to get to go back at that because uh, you know there are a couple of resources that I've been able to add. Um, but I don't have to kind of go back through the old old resources. I can add some new stuff to that. Uh, but that's that's what it's looked like for me to have, uh, you know, the nice thing about computers is then you have files that you don't, that are files, but they aren't really files. You don't have to carry right. boxes and boxes of files with you. But um, but part of what, what's helped me and, and, and part of the reason I'm thankful for for the mentoring that helped me try to figure out where I was going over the next year to year and a half is... Uh, I'm in enough settings these days with sort of conferences and academic settings where there are big book fairs and all the publishers have shown up that it's nice to be able to go through that and and go, hey, I know I'm going to be, I know I'm going to be in Corinthians in a year. Um, here's this new book on First and Second Corinthians or this new book on Paul. Um, I, I'm, I need to add that to the resources that I'm going to work through. Um, and so it, you know, I, I'm. Yeah, I have more books than I should, um, but I, but it's nice to, to be out far enough that you're able to find resources over over a period of time and be able to to work ahead and read ahead, um, and so you know I I I'm trying to compile those notes out ahead at least at least uh, five six seven weeks ahead, but but obviously you know week to week your focus is on the particular text that's coming up for this next Sunday, even though you've done some work and you, you've had to do enough work. So for me, it, it didn't make sense, even in a year in Mark, it didn't make sense for me to start at verse 1 and go all the way through the end. So I was, I still wanted to be sensitive to where the church year is. And so I, we, you know, I looked at the passion narratives during Lent and, um, you know, there's no birth narratives, but... <laughs> But how do you how do you shape the various seasons of the year? So we didn't just kind of start at the beginning and go all the way through the end. I knew Mark well enough to kind of put it into to six or six to eight week blocks. Um, and we're you know we're one of those kinds of churches where you want to change the bulletin cover, the worship folder cover every six or seven eight weeks. Uh, think through some of the you know if I can create at least if not series, but at least uh, kind of take mark in sections uh so so it doesn't seem quite as daunting as uh, just spending a whole year on kind of going verse by verse through mark um but you have to know it you have to have done enough stuff read enough stuff to kind of be able to break that up ahead of time and so i, I was far enough ahead of time to be to be able to do that um but i also for the most part preach without notes and so yeah, you know, I really got to focus in on what this week is about, um, and then you know it's almost as though once that's out, uh, I got to move on, you know, erase the tape and go back, and and now we're we're working on this next week. Um, so it's a little bit of both, and you're 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 spending some time looking ahead, but but most of your focus is is week to week. And so this is Monday morning. This is uh, Monday morning. So I, you know, obviously you you preached yesterday. Ideally. You're settling in, you know, for this week with a collection of really just some exegetical work or some thoughtful work that you've already done. 
I assume you might not necessarily have a generative idea on a typical week. Maybe you already do this week, but so what does this week then look like? Like how much time do you have to set aside? Do you have kind of a structured schedule for that or how does that play out? Yeah. So I, I take Friday as my day off. So Monday's kind of the day to come in and see how many things broke loose yesterday and what kind of chaos was created in the world. Um, <laughs> and try to get the week uh, together. I'll spend at least an hour or two uh, thinking about the service uh, for this next coming Sunday, beginning to think through some general ideas about where I think this might go. We have staff meeting on Tuesday morning, so I know that tomorrow I'm going to need to know enough about where I think we're going to go that I can talk with uh, the worship pastor about how I think things ought to flow this week. And uh, to me, the the most difficult thing each week is to figure out how to respond. Uh, we're, we're, we're not a complete word and table tradition. So we, we do Eucharist together at the first Sunday of each month. And those are my favorite Sundays because I know how to close. Um, I, I think I can, I can, every sermon can somehow get us to the table. Um, but, uh, but those other weeks, we've got to figure out how, how do I want to respond this week. And so I, I know that the people who, all, who also have a stake in the planning of the service, they need to, to have some kind of heads up by tomorrow morning. Uh, but Tuesday afternoon is probably the biggest day for me in terms of having the time and space to, to begin to really focus in. If, if, I don't, if I don't have some sense of where we're, of what the generative idea is by Tuesday when I walk out or Wednesday morning, um, I, I get a little bit of a panicked feeling in my gut. Um, mm. But so it's usually by then. And, and then the rest of the week becomes uh, figuring out then how, what's, how am I going to present this? I, I know what I want to present, but, but now what's the best way uh, for, what's the best way for the sermon to flow? Um, well, and, and you mentioned the homiletical plot, so that's where you're already leading into. So I'll just I'll just give you a little shove, go in that direction further. Okay. Uh, um, it, do you follow? Because I know the homiletical plot's all about you know he has a structure that he invites you to. Do you do you find that you have a structure that you follow, or how do you how do those pieces come together in that sermon? Um, yes and no. I you know I I find what I find most helpful about Lowry is. And in some ways, uh, he's not the only person who does that. Uh, Walter Brueggemann has a wonderful book. Uh, years ago, he, he wrote a book called, um, I always only remember the subtitle, uh, but uh, The Gospel in a Three-Storied Universe, uh, Biblical mm-hmm. Perspectives on Evangelism, I think is what it's called. But he basically does the same thing where he says, the text is always about announcing some kind of problem and then God announces the solution. And then we figure out how to, how to move forward out of that. And so certainly, I, you know, I think following Lowry or Brueggemann or somebody like that, I've thought through those three questions, th- those questions, uh, but I don't always follow Lowry's method is the sort of the oops, the ug, the we, the, or the aha, the we, and the yay. Um, and, and sometimes I find that, that, to be helpful to think about what's the how do you know for him how do we set how do we upset the equilibrium um but you know there i try to think about how do i how do i pull people into this um there may be a story that i want to tell there may be 
some way to begin to think about uh so if I go back to text like like who's the naked young man in mark um i I tell a story about one of our children who we could never keep clothes on him um and yeah. you know so so I want us to start to think about how unusual this is for this person who is this person so i I've at least stimulated the congregation enough that they're leaning into okay i want to know this is weird i want to know where this is going and and we can then wrestle with that but but you know every sermon is different because there are some some sermons where to get to the generative idea you know that there's some significant teaching that needs to take place this isn't just an obvious text or this isn't so i'm gonna have to do i'm gonna have to spend you know five to ten minutes here doing some some teaching and so what does that look like um i i'm not a i don't use a whole lot of media but there may be times in teaching where a slide or two helps uh where a diagram helps um and so you know what what pieces need need to get us to the generative idea um but i I tend to kind of follow that method of saying, okay, what's the problem and how let's get to the generative idea, but then concluding with, and what, and now what difference does this make for us? I mean, what, why is that important? Uh, I think that was in some ways the, the hardest thing for me to learn as a preacher um, because I ended up, you know, staying in seminary and doing another degree and hanging out with academics. Uh, yeah. One of the problems when you hang out with academics is ideas become fun on their own, you know, and, and there were, yeah. there were some times early on in preaching where I felt like, man, that was a really great idea, but I'm not sure it, it mattered to anybody. I mean, other than people, the nerds that were there too, who walked out saying, wow, I'd never even thought about that text in that way. Uh, well, that was cool. I'm glad that we had that mental exercise, but what, you know, what, uh, now, now as the benedictions prayed over us and were sent out into the world to, to be his disciples. What difference does that generative idea now make for us? Um, I think, you know, I, I do try to always figure out how to, how, how to conclude a sermon that kind of way. Um, but, but that, and again, that may lead us to different responses than that may lead us to prayer. It may lead us to the table. It may lead us to worship. So yeah, every sermon's different in some ways, um, and every sermon's the same in some ways, but, uh, so it's, it feels like to me that the same questions help me get at the generative idea, but once I'm there, then sermons seem to kind of take on a life of their own in terms of how that sermon gets proclaimed. And for that, for that fun, and this is a question I jotted down earlier, I knew we'd get back to it, which is you talked about the importance, um, just in terms of it's not only it's not only understanding this ancient story, but it's also, you know, practices as a response or that it's, we're not just formed by the story itself, but we're formed by the practices. So what is your what would you say your crossover is between application and your preaching and tying that directly to those practices? Does it does your application tend to be more collectively we move towards these practices or do you try to also mix in some individual application that's what it might look like for you this week you understand the nuance of that question yeah i do i, I, I just I, asked you about seven questions i think no you did but um and my my medium short answer would be to say i probably lean towards the former rather than the latter i um 
so if, you know I, I have a whole long list of pet peeves but one of them is and one of the things I feel like growing up in in the church of Nazarene but but in sort of American evangelicalism in general one of the beautiful things about that has been this emphasis on on having a personal relationship with Jesus um but having grown up so deeply enmeshed in that uh I feel like that part of of American Christianity has had very little ecclesiology and so my people are tired of hearing me say it but I say all the time to them you know one of my goals as a pastor is to is to help you quit seeing the church as some place that you go and begin to see it as something that we are and and so a lot of the to me a lot of the application then I think for me ends up or the the emphasis on the practices ends up being somewhat communal in nature and trying to move us towards the uniqueness of the body of Christ in the world and what are the ways that we practice these things together and what are the again having been messed up by Jamie Smith what are the what are the historic practices that we might be able to recapture that the wisdom of the church understood that as we do this together something deep within the core of our bones and being is being formed to be a different kind of people in the world. But there are some, you know, there are some very individual applications though too. And uh, you know, yesterday I, I preached on what does it mean to raise resident aliens? You know, how do, you, how do we, you know, the challenge of a people in exile, there's uh, in some ways ex- I've been trying to say to people, in some ways exile or a sense of dislocation that we feel these days within the culture actually may be something God's doing for our benefit to to recover the uniqueness of who we are. But certainly a challenge of a people who have a sense of exile is that the culture doesn't really serve to prop up what you're trying to do with your kids and oftentimes even feels somewhat antagonistic. Um, but part of the application was to say, you know, how how do we as families who at least say that we are are a people who are shaped by the particularity of the story. How do we help our children see? Uh, I, I, I used Joshua 4 yesterday, the stones. You know, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Um, and, I, and I tried to say to the, to the congregation, one of the things I want you to think about this week is how many times have you really sat down with your children and talked about how your commitment to Christ shapes the way that you as a family spend money? your children understand the ways in which you're and I said now obviously there's an assumption in that question and the assumption is that your faith actually influences the way you spend money right yeah um but have you ever talked to your kids about the way that your faith played into the decision for you know in in terms of uh, pursuing a spouse thinking through a future the way that your faith has shaped your understanding of vocation and pursuing a career um the way in which faith has informed where you live and and how you treat your neighbors and and how your time is spent you know so in some ways it was a bit of a go do these things this week kind of thing or think through these things um but i would say more often than not I, i'm trying to think through the communal the ecclesiological response uh for us as god's people uh I sat under some preaching for a while where every week there was a kind of light. The end of the sermon was, here's a life action step. Go do this this week. And I was always suspicious that none of us really did it. 
Um, but secondly, that it was a little bit, it tended to be a, a little bit too personal for me, that this is just, I, I don't want, I'm, I've been shaped enough by by a robust ecclesiology to say, I don't want this just, Christianity to be just something we all added to our lives and it's making our life work better. And so coming to church is a little bit like, like um, checking into Weight Watchers each week and this week they say, well, this week, why don't you try to do this? Or going to the gym and they say, why don't you add, why don't you add some curls to your workout this week? Um, but that there is something unique about how we're responding together as a people and being formed in that. Uh, but that may lead us to spiritual discipline. That may lead us to some things that that we need to recover, both individually and corporately. Yeah, that, that was purely a selfish question because I think I, I, I like you. I tend toward a collective, you know, ecclesiastical response to the sermon, and I, you know, I wonder what it looks like for us to to balance both and not swing too far one way or the other. But it seems like you've been thinking through that a lot more than I have in a way that's helpful. Um, all right, so a couple more questions. We'll start winding down here, but just practical stuff. You talked about you have way too many books and like you like to highlight. So <laughs> there's, I no assume, such thing. there's no such thing. Versus I was going to say, I was, I was going to defend you there, but uh, I assume you are a like physical, tangible book guy. You're not a ebook, Bible software kind of guy. You have. Uh, I have, I have a little bit of that. I'm not much of a Bible software guy, just in, I mean, I've had more Hebrew and Greek than, than I needed, but, um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't stick with it well enough to, I, mean, I don't read out of my Hebrew Bible or my Greek. <laughs> you know, translate on the fly from the pulpit. No, no, no. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, and I, I use a couple of sources that tend to kind of get into the language stuff. Um, and sometimes generative ideas come from that. I, I feel like sometimes people, uh, I, I don't know how much working through verb tenses helps people. There's yeah. some texts that I think are really relative uh, help um, in to know those kinds of things and do those kinds of things well. But uh, and I have I, I, there, especially with the lectionary, there are some good resources. Um, I always find some place like textweek.com as a as an interesting place to go yeah. um, in terms of lectionary resources and. There's usually links to two or three articles that are kind of fun to read and stimulate some generative idea thoughts out of that. Um, and, and again, when I'm with students teaching preaching, I say one of the nice things about doing the lecture is not only that it forces you to go places you wouldn't normally go. Uh, so everybody in my family are preachers, and so both my grandfathers were, were ministers. And my fam when my grandfather died, my family gave me his preaching Bible. But I joke with students that when you open it up, the Gospel of John just falls out on the ground and is held together with rusty paper clips. But mm. uh, but Leviticus still has that new Bible smell. <laughs> uh, so that, you know, the nice thing is the, the lectionary takes you places you would normally go. And it also, there's some great resources to at least, um, you know, some of the books that, uh, you know, compilations of just, you know, three or four paragraphs of commentary on each text uh, throughout year A um, are kind of nice in terms of being able to at least initially think through, okay, wh where do I want, what text do I want to kind of lean into in Advent before I do all of this hard work or buy all these different resources. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm 50 years old, kind of old school. Uh, there are some, 
internet resources that I've found helpful, but not a whole lot. Fair, fair. Well, then I'm going to ask you a unique question. We'll, we'll wind down with this one other than just the how can people find you online. But, you know, you've alluded a couple of times to some of the experience you have teaching younger preachers. I would say most of the guests I've had would be, uh, you know, younger preachers, maybe in their first ministry. And I certainly know a fair amount, just the nature of the media we're talking here, you know, a fair amount of the listeners would be younger preachers. So not to take an entire, you know, three credit semester course on preaching and try to stick it in three minutes. But, uh, you know, what would you say would be some of the most helpful things from your experience and what you try to teach uh, that can serve as directive help or even reminders for those of us who are, I say those of us, I'm 46, but I'm including myself in the younger preachers. <laughs> yeah, well, I would uh, like to include myself there for a little while longer, but I understand. But less experience than you. Um, yeah, I mean, what what would you say that would be just helpful reminders or things that you really try to get across to your students? Yeah, so I say to them, you, you know, you need to be, um, you need to learn to be a good exegeter of scripture uh but but in some ways uh you've got to do the exegetical work to get at the the really good generative idea um but then at some point you need to let the generative idea go you know exegetical papers are really different than than sermons and so thinking through what how do i how do i proclaim this gospel uh to this people who so desperately need it uh, but I, you know, I say to them, you should become a student of good preaching and you should, I, you know, I was, I, you know, I'm a little bit of a nerd. And so I was kind of a nerd as a, when I knew, when I sensed, um, kind of laid out a lessons that I was probably headed towards ministry. There were two or three preachers that I listened to on a regular basis and, and not only paid it, I've, I've tried to pay attention to not only what they said, but but those preachers who I felt like communicated well, how did they say that? What were, you know, how did, uh, what made them such effective preachers and communicators and what could I learn from that? Um, I, I think that there is, uh, there's real wisdom too in kind of figuring out who you are and uh, fighting in your own armor, to use that biblical metaphor, to kind of knowing what is it that I do well and, and how, what's the uniqueness of my own preaching and, and leaning into that to some degree. In my first senior pastorate, I, I really benefited from the fact that they already had, uh, there was a, I, my first senior pastorate was in the Dallas area. And so you got all these mega churches around that are all, all podcasting or on television. And so before I got there, there was a big church that was upgrading their equipment and sort of sold all their old equipment on eBay. So we had, we had the equipment to be able to to podcast on video. And and the nice thing was it it forced me to go back and watch myself week after week. And I you know I say to I when I teach preaching I I make students preach two or three times and I videotape it and then I sit down and force them to watch it with me and it's painful. I mean it's horrible. Yeah. It's, it's painful. Um, but. But spending the first two or three years forcing myself to watch myself week after week, first of all, made me realize how many, how many bad verbal habits I have, how many kind of repetitive physical motions I have. You know, tried to. It, it really helped me to try to break some bad habits. Um, most of the 
the generation of preachers that I work with now, you know, typical millennials say like after every third word. And it's like, you know, well, like I'm doing this like, and you know, so I try to show all of the ways that there there's verbal patterns that we pick up from the culture that if we can get at least up into the forefront of our minds, we can break some of those and become more effective communicators. But, but I, you know, I think, especially in those first few years, you should force yourself to have to listen to yourself. If you're forcing these people to listen to yourself, you ought to at least do the courtesy of of forcing yourself to have to hear it. Um, But I think that, that, that focusing and really paying attention to, to growing and developing. I I still feel like that myself. I, I still want, I want every year to feel like I'm becoming a better preacher. Um, it's, you know, all of the various pieces of worship are significant. And I, and the longer I've been doing this, the more I realize preaching is a part of worship. It's not the whole thing. Um, even though I'm part of a tradition where the pulpit got moved to the middle, uh, because the word is central to everything that we're doing today. Uh, and all those other pieces are important. I know that, that, man, if, if we don't preach well, the other pieces don't seem to fit very well either. And, and so I, you know, I just take, I try to take so seriously what it means to, to grow and to develop and to continue to improve, um, and to be thoughtful, uh, as a preacher. I love when, you know, my, my favorite compliments are when people will say, I've been in church my whole life and I've never heard a te- that text that way. And, and man, it makes so much sense. Or I see, and, and that's just delightful. I mean, it, it's delightful. And I, I really enjoy, I get to preach in other places this next week. I'm going to go preach at a church in, in Detroit for a few days. And, and that's okay. But my favorite preaching is to be with a congregation that you know well, and you can narrate their story into the gospel story and vice versa. And just week after week to be able to to break open the word um, and allow the word to shape the life of this particular community. There's something really profound and beautiful about that. Yeah. I love that. I love the idea of just leaning into the same community of people over and over and over. Uh, I, I've been someone, in, I mean, I know that there's a lot of well-known preachers out there, but I've tried to be really intentional about on this podcast, bringing in people who preach to the same congregation over and over and over. Cause it's, there's just a different nuance to preaching when that's what you're trying to do. Not at all to disparage the well-knowns and the travelers, but yeah, there's something to that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's che- you know traveling is fun. It, sure. It's sort of cheating because you get to use your best stuff every time. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. All of us have six stories that we can <laughs> that are go tos, um, but but there's something uh, to me. I, you know, even when I'm when I'm gone, and I'm really sort of jealous about guarding my own pulpit too. There's something really uh, there's something really delightful about getting to journey with the people and and narrate our stories together. Yeah. Narrate our stories together. I'm writing that down. I'm going to remember that phrase. Well, I'm typing that in <clears throat> to keep. Um, what are uh, what are places people can find you online? The church website. I don't know if you do the the social media things or if you have a blog or anything like that. But how can people keep up with you? Yeah. So a, a couple of ways. Uh, probably the best is to um, our our church website is Nampa N A M P A uh nampa college church.com uh the sermons are all archived there um but folks who subscribe to podcasts can find uh 
can find it on uh, in Nampa College Church and can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes um, as well there. Uh, and they can find me on Facebook. Um, I have a personal Facebook page, but I also have a kind of pastoral author page uh, under T. Scott Daniels, um, and people can go there and like that page and find my blog there and find um, as book projects and those kinds of things come out. Um, I, I use that as a place to kind of let people know what's coming up. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us here. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun. Always fun to get to talk about. It is, is it? Yeah. All right. Well, blessings to you. Thanks, John. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, I'd appreciate if you consider leaving a review on iTunes. That's one of the ways that podcasts go up in iTunes rankings and can help other people find the podcast. Uh, you can also share the podcast. I see this pretty regularly these days, and I'm thankful for that. But if you can share the podcast on Twitter, share on Facebook, uh, write a blog post about it, all that helps others find it. And more often than not, I find that somebody found the podcast, and somebody else had mentioned it. So thanks for helping us spread the word. Bless you.